From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. This is the people's victory because the people powered this campaign. Denver Mayor Michael Hancock is our guest. What will define his third and final term? Then, it's a wet year in Colorado, but don't fall prey to water amnesia. Also, the great sand dunes are making waves. Plus, Western families who kept their Jewish roots under wraps. Why did my family keep so many secrets? Why were they still scared? The crypto-Jews of Colorado. And a Colorado chorus will perform on hallowed ground in France. It's going to be the last major commemoration of D-Day where there are living veterans that were there on the battlefield on that day. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Voters in Colorado's biggest city stuck with a known quantity. Denver Mayor Michael Hancock was elected to a third term in a bitter runoff with, at last check, about 56% of the vote. In a city so full of possibilities, I want every child to achieve their dreams the way that I did and I was able to. I want every person to realize their dreams, every worker to build a career, every family to secure their future. That's what this campaign was all about from the very beginning. It was about knowing where we've been, where we are, and where we hope to go. A taste of Hancock's victory speech after he defeated Jamie Gillis. There will be new faces on city council, whom, of course, Hancock must work with. So what does he hope will define this final term? Mayor Hancock, welcome back to the program. Ryan, thank you. Glad to be with you. You also said after your win, you don't waste the final term, that it's an opportunity to be bold. Why don't we start there? What's your boldest single idea? <laughs> well, I think we get a chance to be bold, particularly around the areas of sustainability. We've talked about the pay-as-you-throw uh, system in Denver, uh, where we really uh, incentivize the recycling and composting as opposed to throwing away trash. I think it's for our all, all for our better good uh, going forward, and it certainly will be cost-efficient and more cost-effective for the people of Denver as opposed to managing more and more waste into our landfill, but also more sustainability-beneficial. Uh, what do you think the the bigger impact of that is for the city, for the health of of the environment? Well, we're all focused on uh, climate change, and and uh, one way to uh, combat climate change, of course, is to be more um, uh, efficient and sustainable with regards to our waste streams uh, going forward. And so, you know, those that gives us a chance to really um, at least take care of that end. And again, to incentivize the residents of Denver to be uh, more strategic in terms of what we send to our uh, our landfills um, and, and get more focused on recycling and, and composting. Right now, we have an inverted system. It doesn't make a lot of sense, and we just got to get smarter and more strategic about it. Elsewhere in your victory speech, you called this the people's victory because the people powered this campaign. Uh, but of course, in the May election, you weren't the first choice of more than half of Denver voters. Given that, will you change your administration's approach in the next four years in some important way? Ryan, I said from day one that this was a uh, employment in, uh, or job evaluation for me. Um, the other candidates, it was a job interview for them. And as in any personnel evaluation, you have some, you'll be told some things that are working and some things not so well. 
but the goal is to get better. And I think uh, I think last night's vote was a uh, a confirmation that Denver is headed in the right direction. And that number, fifty six percent of the uh, of the votes that I receive, or the fifty six percent that I receive, is really consistent actually of what we saw in most of our polling in terms of what people said they felt in terms of Denver going in the right direction. And so we, we're moving in the right direction. We do need to fine tune some things, some community engagement to make sure that people understand and are seeing what we're doing and all those good things. Because when we had a chance in the campaign to talk about these things in smaller settings where we can really probe more intricately on these issues, people got it. Um, but, you know, in the fast paced life that we live uh, in the short social media platforms that we have, people aren't hearing what we're doing. So we just got to get better at that. And we're going to work to do that. It's interesting because what you're saying there is they like the message when they hear it. It's just that they're not hearing it. But it doesn't sound like there's anything about your message uh, or about the general direction that you're going to change. No, I don't think I'm not saying we're not going to change anything. I, I'm not saying that at all. I, I think we have we learned some lessons during this campaign. Give me I an example. Heard some yeah. things. Well, I, again, people we think people are hearing things through traditional social or traditional media and social media platforms, and people are not, and uh, they want to hear. But again, that's uh, about the getting the message. I'm asking. Yeah, that's getting the message. To them. We got to do a better job, and we got to do a better job of that. Like I said, when we're in smaller settings and we're able to get deeper on these issues, people hear it now. Um, people walk away going, now, I understand. We turned some people during the election uh, as a result of being able to get out there and have those very details and intimate conversations with people. So it, it does matter. Now, can we get smarter on the issues of, uh, that, that, are, that are important to people? Housing, homeless, uh, mobility. We're not saying we have all the answers. There were some ideas that were shared with us. We'll, we'll assess some of those ideas and we may implement some of them. Um, but yeah, we, we're going to get better at this and, and we're going to keep our ears open and our eyes wide open and to be open, accessible to those uh, uh, different additional ideas. Housing, mobility and homelessness, three certainly pressing issues facing Denver. What's uh, an idea you want to evaluate in one of those three arenas? Well, I think you saw us move forward during it was during the campaign, but it was something we had been working on, and that was how do we become more strategic with regards to our shelters, help people stay in the shelters longer during the day so they're not moved out in the morning time, uh, lower those barriers, particularly people who have partners who may have a uh, animal with them um, and need to store their uh, property and securely so st- store their personal belongings. Those are things that we're moving forward with already. Matter of fact, during the campaign, we were working with the business and philanthropic community to raise about six, close to $16 million uh, to effectuate these opportunities that we want to move forward with. We were able to accomplish that, and uh, we're gonna, we are implementing that now. We already have RFP on the street, and many shelters responded, and I suspect that very shortly we'll have new strategies in place to give people longer-term stays in shelters during the daytime, uh, access to restrooms, access to washing, uh, washing uh, equipment, uh, as well as uh, other... Uh, uh, opportunities to take showers and things of that nature. RFP is a request for a proposal. Yeah, so it's a sorry for of, that, man. That's okay. So it's, government it's, speak. It's, it's uh, government speak, indeed. Uh, so it's a question of more nimble shelters. Is it also just a question of more shelter beds? Uh, oh, yeah, we always... Quickly? Yes, sir. We have expanded shelter beds, and we're also going to do some voucher housing, our vouchers for housing. So we'll be able to put uh, an additional four to 600 people into temporary housing while we look for permanent housing for them. Okay, quickly on congestion and traffic. So you had an opponent in this race who was very focused, for instance, on bringing back streetcars as a way of getting around Denver. Uh, what's an idea you'll consider for reducing congestion? 
Well, again, we have a full mobility action plan that's already been deployed, and so we'll see a lot of that uh, implemented over the next term. Uh, here's the reality. We're always in the laboratory, Ryan, and I think that's important for people to know. While we're rolling out bus rapid transit, while we're building 125 miles of uh, new bike lanes in the city of Denver, uh, while we're expanding our sidewalk network, completing net- uh, sidewalks where they don't exist today, uh, while we're doing all those things, we're also looking at technology, for example, smart city technology to deploy throughout the city to keep us moving uh, throughout the city, to be to, to not hold us up in traffic when there's no cross traffic, for example. Those are things that uh, I'm really, really excited about. In fact, Denver will be uh, the first city in the country that will roll out some of this technology this year alone, 2019. Okay. In her concession speech, Jamie Gillis said she's proud that her campaign changed the conversation in Denver. We brought up issues that neighborhoods and communities around the city are feeling every day. Issues that have been forgotten during the growth in this city. We gave the people that feel left out of the conversation a voice, and I will find a way to continue giving them a voice as we go forward. I understand that you're going to be sitting down with Jamie Gillis, I think you said over a beer last night. How, how, how um, do you think that'll go? Do you think you'll offer her a role in your administration? You know what? I, I, I don't think so. I think where this was not so much about, Jamie, can you come work with us? This was about, Jamie, let's uh, uh, talk, and we got uh, fences we have to mend. It's an opportunity for us to have a conversation about the future of the city. Uh, what are those specific ideas where you talk about neighborhoods felt left behind? What specific stories did you hear? Um, and, 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 you know, we'll meld them with some of the analysis that we're doing and, and assessment we're doing. And again, the whole idea is to make Denver better. The biggest winner in this election was a measure that gives voters a say before tax dollars go towards any future Olympic Games. Uh, this passed with almost 80 percent of the vote. Uh, In 2017, you appointed an exploratory committee that eventually recommended Denver consider an Olympic bid. Do you take the passage of this measure as a sign that Denverites don't actually want the Games? Not necessarily. Actually, we had a lot of polling up to that point that showed that it would pass two to to one in Denver if we were to ask the question whether or not we should host the Olympic. Throughout the state of Colorado, it passed uh, three to one. Um, and so it, it was no surprise that they made that that recommendation passed. Actually, that same um, exploratory committee recommended that we would go to the vote of the people and that we would do a statewide question. Because though Denver would be the host city, and there has to be a host city in every state uh, to host the Olympics, uh, to apply for the Olympics, uh, the fact is that most of the activities would occur outside of Denver, Colorado. Mm-hmm. And it would be primarily primarily up in our suburban communities and up in the mountains, of course. The reality is that Denver today hosts every year an Olympic-sized event in our city called the National Western Stock Show. Uh, And so uh, the stock show has greater impact and actually more people who would be in Denver uh, for three weeks than the the Olympics would. So we're not afraid of a vote, and I'm not surprised that people of Denver voted for it. I voted for it, quite frankly. Hmm. I wouldn't necessarily think of... Uh, the stock show and the Olympics is commensurate in terms of their overall impact, perhaps. But I think you're saying specifically that uh, th- those venues that are in the city uh, versus in the mountain communities. Ad- and the population over three weeks, um, you know, similar to the Olympics, we actually have more people who come to National Western than we do the Olympics in terms of uh, what the forecasts were. Mayor, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, Ryan, as always, enjoy talking to you. Mayor Michael Hancock elected to a third and final term in Denver.
There isn't a lick of drought in Colorado right now because the spring's been so cool and wet. Mountain snowpack is more than five times the June average. And rafters say this could be the best summer in a generation. But water managers warn, don't party too hardy. Andy Mueller leads the Colorado River District. Hi, Andy. Hi, Ryan. How are you this morning? I'm doing well, and I think we should compare this year to what's normal in the West. How far outside the norm are we this year? Well, that's an excellent question, and I, I think the, the key to look at looking at snowpack is where we are on the actual peak of the snowpack. And so our, our peak in, of snowpack usually occurs in early April, and this year our peak of our snowpack was at 133% of normal. And that's a, that's a great number. That means that we had a healthy snowpack, especially in light of what occurred last year and even over the last 19 years. We felt like that was tremendous snow for those of us who've been living here. Um, today, however, you're seeing numbers, as you said in your introduction, where the statewide average for today's date is over 539% higher than the average. And, and that's getting a lot of people very excited you look down in the southwest, for instance, and the, the, the highest snowpack right now, it's over a thousand percent of normal. People get very nervous when they hear numbers like that. What does that mean? In reality, what that means is it's only for today's date. And in other words, our peak was just slightly above normal at 133 percent. But today it's so much higher because we've enjoyed a cool, wet spring that has kept the snowpack intact longer than your average year. And so our our average year, we see the runoff peaking in our rivers in uh, around June 1st, so right about now. Our experts are predicting in the state our rivers are going to peak anywhere between the 10th of June to the 27th of June on some rivers, so much later than our average peak flow. And that's just because the snowpack has been uh, kept intact by our nice, cool weather. Are you bracing for floods? In certain parts of the states, I think we are anticipating some floods. Uh, Certain areas, I would say, uh, if you look at Hinsdale County, for instance, the most remote county in our state, uh, it it has uh, some significant flooding problems headed its way primarily due to avalanche debris and some of its drainages. Uh, Our state officials are out there working very hard to prevent that flooding from damaging property and taking lives. Uh, There are other areas in the state uh, I think the La Plata River went under flood watch today uh, down in near Durango. And, and so, there, yes, there, there are flooding uh, in certain areas of the state that we're concerned about. But I, th- I think what you uh, want to convey to Colorado is that despite these incredible numbers, uh, it is, one, unusual for the West, and two, it doesn't exactly make up for, one, the long-term climate trends, and two, the growing population in the West. Help us put this year into some perspective. Sure, Ryan. Um, If you think about this, uh, in the last 19 years, the Colorado River Basin has suffered a tremendous drought. And and that drought um, has has been led by two factors. One is a reduced precipitation in some parts of the basin. Primarily, if you think of it, um, in our state, south of I-70, we've had reduced precipitation in the basin. Um, North of I-70, it's been slightly below average, but not tremendously, statistically speaking, not not that much. So very, very dry in in southern Colorado. Very, very dry in southern Colorado last year and, and the preceding 18 years. 
Um, but but the major factor uh, that climate change is impacting our rivers and our snowpack it, is the rise in temperatures. Over the last 30 years, we've seen a 2% or, excuse me, 2-degree Fahrenheit change in our temperatures. And that 2-degree Fahrenheit change in temperatures has resulted in a 7 to 8% drop in the flows in our rivers. And, and, and so we're seeing stream flow directly impacted by rising temperature. And, and that's what we, those of us who study uh, climate predictions and, and water supply, really can expect. And we want the public to understand that, that this year has been fantastic, but it's an anomaly. We should expect the return of uh, many more dry years than wet years, many more hot years than the wet spring we've experienced. And so we encourage people to think about water supply in the long term, in yeah. the 20 to 30 year horizon. I mean, this is fascinating because with rising temperatures, let's just say there's more precipitation in a given year. We're just going to expect more of that to evaporate because it's getting warmer in the West. I want to talk about reservoirs. So we talked about snowpack, which actually winds up being a really important water storage, natural water storage for Colorado. But to the man-made reservoirs, uh, Lake Powell, uh, I know at the start of the year, was at about 42 percent. Lake Mead, a little lower. Uh, They had those telltale bathtub rings. What would it take to fill the major Colorado River reservoirs to capacity? That's an excellent question, Ryan. So this year, going back to the phenomenal snowpack we've had, it would take at least seven and a half to nine or possibly as many as 13 of these years that we've had in, in, in Colorado back to back in order to fill those two reservoirs on the system. They're oh, my low. goodness. OK. Um, yeah. And, and if there's one thing we can count on Colorado and in the Colorado River Basin is that climate variability is, is here to stay and will probably get worse. And, and so we can't count on eight more uh, 2019 snowpacks to occur back to back. That just that that's not within anyone's statistical probability of occurring. What do I take away from this as a water consumer? Um, what I would suggest people take away is be thankful for the year we have. Get out there and boat and fish and enjoy the water. But in your daily life and in the way you consume water anywhere in the state we would ask that you think about ways that you can conserve and adopt and utilize those even in wet years. So whether you're in Denver or Pueblo or Grand Junction, think about how your yard is landscaped. Think about what measures you can take within your own home to reduce your water consumption. Uh, It's important. We're all tied into these rivers, primarily tied into the Colorado River because it supplies water to so many parts of our state. We need, in order to save that river and save the habitat that's dependent upon it, we need people to change their historic behavior towards water. Conserve as your primary focus when you're using that water. Andy, thanks so much for being with us. Well, thank you, Ryan. I appreciate it. Andy Mueller is general manager of the Colorado River District. Now, you may not think of Colorado's great sand dunes as a beach destination, But with all the moisture this year, people have been flocking there to play in the waves. This is sound from Instagram user Christy Watson. The waves are from all the snowmelt flowing into the Great Sand Dunes National Park. And park ranger Fred Bunch is back with us for an explanation of what's going on there. Howdy, Fred. 
Hey, good morning, Ryan. How are you? I'm doing well. How, how is the water? Have you dipped your toe in? I have, yeah. It's uh, like you said, Colorado's only beach is open, and uh, uh, a lot of that is a result of the uh, good snowpack that we are uh, enjoying. And so, that when the creek flows, it flows in a phenomena called surging or pulsating flow. And Ryan, this uh, pulsating flow is the best example of that phenomena in the world. And it has to do with a uniform bed and high velocity of water. Huh. Pulsating flow. In other words, that pulsating results in some waves. Exactly. It's like waves on a beach. And uh, this, this wave action is really fun to play in and to splash around in. But also it's a very efficient way to move sand. And that's a key part of our uh, geologic and hydrologic system here is that that uh, creek action uh, transports sand like a conveyor belt back out to the southwest of the dune field. And when, it, when the creek is dry, then the wind can blow that sand back into the main dunes. Oh, fascinating. Okay, so this is an example of the dunes being shaped by forces other than wind. Uh, the creek you refer to, I think, is Medno Creek. Is that right? That, that's correct, Medno Creek. Yes, sir. And it uh, runs along uh, the base of the sand dunes. Uh, I don't want to go overboard, per se, with these waves, but how do they compare to, say, uh, previous years, which I know have been much drier? Uh, yeah, this last year hardly it didn't surge at all. In low flows, it just uh, uh, trickles out on the uh, near the dunes. But this year, you know, as has been mentioned before, we're 160 percent of normal, and so the uh, when you get a good runoff, the waves then uh, start um, uh, building and, and start that periodicity, that flow that, that every 15, 20 seconds a wave goes through. And uh, that is uh, a result of the higher flows. I don't imagine you can surf in these waves, but kids and adults certainly can play there. What kinds of things have you seen people doing? Oh, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, uh, I've seen kids on the inner tubes. And the amazing thing about it, because it, there's a wave will go through and they'll ride it and then they'll stop and another wave will come pick them up and, and ride it. So it's, it's great for uh, uh, children in tubes. And uh, uh, it adds a lot to the visitor's enjoyment. And they, they stay longer when the, when the uh, creek is flowing. Do critters get swept away? I mean, it's fun for the people, but I wonder if this also just changes life for the animals of the dunes. Um, no, not, uh, I haven't seen that. I mean, the, they're uh, deer, and I've even seen bighorn sheep come down and, and drink out of the creek. But uh, well, lovely. Uh, they, they know what to do. <laughs> do you think this will translate into more visitors? Yes. Yeah, so we've been very, very busy. Our visitation's up, and uh, so there's... Um, a lot of folks come in to enjoy this. Fred, thanks so much for the picture from the Great Sand Dunes. My pleasure, sir. Fred Bunch, Chief of Resources Management at Great Sand Dunes National Park, which now features waves. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A story now about families who were forced to hide their identities. You see, some Hispanic Catholics in Colorado and around the West have Jewish ancestry, but those roots were erased or forgotten. Why did my family keep so many secrets? What was it that made them so guarded and so reserved? Why were they still scared? even in the 21st century. That is the voice of Doreen Carvajal, who's a descendant of conversos, Jews who converted to Catholicism 500 years ago to avoid torture 
during the Spanish Inquisition. So how does that history come to reverberate centuries later here in the West? We're going to ask filmmaker Joe Lovett, whose new documentary is called Children of the Inquisition. And Joe, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, These descendants are also known as Mm -hmm. crypto-Jews. You met quite a few who were just discovering their Jewish ancestry. How did they first realize that they were crypto-Jews? Well, in Doreen's case, um, she's a reporter for the New York Times, or has been a reporter for the New York Times, and she was um, talking to a rabbi in a story that she was doing, and he said, Carvajal. He said, uh, that's her last name. That's a Jewish name, a Sephardic name. Um, and she said, uh, no, we're Roman Catholic. And he, and he said, no, no, it's a Jewish name. Um, you should look it up. And she started to do research on her family, and all of a sudden, she discovered that it wasn't just that they were um, – they were descended from a very uh, well-known family. And she, she was not able to follow her ancestry all the way back to the Carvajal on the Carvajal line. She only got back to like the 1700s. Luis de Carvajal was a governor of Nuevo León and, um, and he had come from a converso family. But she followed her family all the way back on, on another side to the Avila family in um, Segovia where her – 16th great-grandfather My uh, was, the, was the minister of the financial minister of King Henry IV, Isabella's older brother who that she uh, took the throne from. Okay, so she is tracing all the way back to Spain yes. and to this history. Yes. I know that in the West there are uh, conversos who have Jewish rituals, yes. some of which they could never really explain why they did, or Jewish symbols, for well, pe- instance, in what were Catholic homes. Yes, of course. Um, and people, they weren't identified necessarily as Jewish rituals. Uh, for instance, um, Rabbi uh, Stephen Leon from El Paso, Texas, um, about 30 years ago, he had just started his congregation as a young man, and, and a young man from, uh, as he was a young rabbi in, in El Paso, and a young man from Juarez came, and he said, you know, my grandmother died. She used to always take me in the basement to light candles, and my mother uh, wouldn't, and she died, and my mother wouldn't continue doing this, and it upset me because she, she used to say these interesting other language prayers. Huh. And, uh, and the priest said, I should see you. So the man came from Juarez to see this rabbi, and the rabbi said, well, it sounds like they're practicing Jewish customs. So he had, Rabbi Leon had heard of crypto-Jews before, but this was the first time that he had ever actually met somebody like that. Okay, these conversas are also known as Anusim. Anusim. The ones forced to convert a member of an Anusim community also in Texas. In your film, describes how she felt after her first mikvah, which is a Jewish ritual bath. When I came out from the mikvah, I was experiencing a feeling of mourning when you lose a loved one. But at the same time, I felt anger that such a beautiful treasure was stolen from us. This is a ritual that Mm -hmm. was only brought into her life more recently, and she feels the loss of not having had it earlier. Why were their ancestors forced to convert to Catholicism? Help us understand the history. Sure. Um, well, when, uh, well, even before the Inquisition, like from the 1390s on, there was some, there was mass anti-Semitism in um, in Spain, and um, during that hundred years, about half the uh, the Jews of Spain converted. Okay, and this would include Doreen's ancestors, um, and then the, for those who converted, um, sometimes it's like today. 
or people or people coming over from Europe after World War II. It wasn't comfortable to be Jewish, and so people um, people made decisions. Uh, sometimes they were for safety. Sometimes they were for economics. Sometimes they were for family. And uh, then with the and then with the um, expulsion of the Jews from Spain in 1492, this is interesting. The same week that Columbus was selling, sending sail for America, yeah. the expulsion decree had gone into effect, and Isabella had 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 gotten rid of all of her Jews. She wanted a con, a completely Catholic realm. So people had to choose: Do I stay and change my identity? Or do I leave and do I um, and keep my identity? And people did both, and, and uh, one or the other. And then some people did both, or did it, uh, then change their mind. I mean, this is why the story is so complex, right? Because there are <clears throat> so many lines to trace moving parts back, mm-hmm. right? Okay, those who converted to Catholicism, were they safe once they did that? Not necessarily. And that's the bad part. That's the difficult part. Because well, that's once, more of the bad part. More of the bad part. Because let's say let, let's say you, you weren't taken by the Inquisition yeah. and um and you did convert. You might be and let's say your conversion was sincere, totally sincere. And um but your neighbor um didn't like the fact that you could read. Because most of the Jews, male Jews, were literate, and the um, most of the population at that time was not. So, if you converted, you were then able to go into certain trades that you couldn't couldn't before. You were then a, a difficult competitor for somebody who couldn't read or, or couldn't do accounts and things like that. So, um, you could be somebody could could want the bounty on your house if they if they turned you in as backsliding, what they call Judaizing. The term Judaizing, Judaizing huh. is to go ahead and practice Jewish uh, rituals even though you're now a Catholic, and that makes you a heretic. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm joined by filmmaker Joe Lovett. Uh, he's going to be speaking tonight after a screening of his new documentary, The Children of the Inquisition. And I'd like to talk about how this reverberates in the West today. So help us understand how these crypto-Jews wind up in the Southwest. Well, what happened, um, I'm not a historian, okay? I'm a filmmaker. And so what I try to do is interpret what, what, what historians tell me. And, yeah. and sometimes it's conflicting and uh, conflicting, confounding information. And things come up, new things are, are, are discovered. But more and more has been discovered in the 20th century. A lot of this was oral history. And um, a number of years ago, Nan Rubin from uh, National Public Radio uh, did a really interesting story with San, Stan Hortis from the uh, University of New Mexico's history department on crypto-Jews. And it was reported pretty widely, and it was like an oddity. What do you mean that these Mexican-Americans come from Jewish backgrounds? What do you mean that they're practicing Jewish roots? Mm. And this, and so what happened was is that when people left Spain and Portugal, Portugal the Portuguese came to the – came to Latin America as well. Um, we assuming, we're assuming that many of them left to get as far away from the Inquisition as possible, as well as to look for new opportunity. So it's estimated that perhaps as much as a quarter of the people of the early colonists to Latin America were, were uh, recent converts. Oh, fascinating. So then in when the, the new world. In yeah. the new world. So then when... Um, and the film takes us through a, a number of these characters. Then when the Inquisition – but when they came to the New World, apparently they were a little lax about the way they 
practice their Catholicism and perhaps— You were further away from the throne. Right, and further away from the threat. And the threats. Mm -hmm. And so maybe you integrated just a few Jewish rituals here and there. Yeah, here and there, right. Okay. So then—so the clergy didn't like it. And the Inquisition then followed the the immigrants— uh, to the New World and set up and set up stations in the New World, and Mexico was one of those places. And so, when things got hot, um, a lot of the people, uh, it seems, um, took the escape route in the Camino Real and headed up to the to the outposts of um, of, of New Spain, the furthest places where they would not be bothered. And that would be the Southwest Could today. be Colorado, could be New Mexico, Arizona. Just a, a quick question, Joe. We only have a few seconds sure. left. Do you find conversos who make a discovery that they are Jewish and who return to Judaism? Very, yes. Very briefly. Yes, this, is, this happens a, a, a good deal, and it's fascinating. Um, the people, some people just want, the people I find just want a little bit of history, and they're interested in their identity. Others actually want to embrace the religion. It could be anything. Filmmaker Joe Lovett will speak tonight, as I said, following a screening of his documentary, The Children of the Inquisition. This is at Denver's BMHBJ Congregation. Emotional support animals, which help their owners with mental health issues, are increasingly both common and controversial. CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg points to one case in Colorado that highlights the tension. To cat people, a cat's purr is truly soothing. And for A.J. White, that reassuring calm is crucial. When he first arrived in Meeker as a teenager, he was struggling. He isolated himself, even ran away from home in the winter. It was ADHD, depression, and extreme anxiety. Uh, suicidal tendencies, I suppose. A fat, flirtatious gray cat named Haim plays at his feet in the living room, while Genki, a slender tiger-striped one, is cautiously watching from the stairs. When A.J. got the cats, his therapist wrote a letter for his landlord, the Meeker Housing Authority, or MHA, explaining they're needed for his mental health. A.J. says they give him a reason to get out of bed in the morning. They're just kind of there. If if you've been so secluded as much as I have, they're pretty much the only things you have in your life. Which is why it was so scary when a few years ago the MHA announced it would require a $300 fee per emotional support animal. At the time, rent was $125 a month for the apartment AJ shared with his dad, Lonnie, who says the new rule didn't seem fair. I'm from Jersey, and like there are just three things you don't just don't mess with. That's my family, uh, my home, and my job. They've messed with two of those. You know, cats are family to me. The MHA refused a request to talk about the lawsuit. Shortly after the policy change, former resident Megan McFadden recorded a conversation with MHA director Stacy Kincher, challenging the new fee for her emotional support dog, Chewy. You can't do that. For a therapy, we can. For a service animal. An emotional support animal is considered a service animal. Kincher tells McFadden she'll talk to the housing board but that she already knows what they're going to say. Pretty well, you're going to have to take us to court. You're going to have to take us to court, Kincher says. And McFadden and the Whites did. 
suing the MHA for violating the Fair Housing Act, which requires what's called reasonable accommodation for people with disabilities. Their attorney, Siddhartha Rathod, sees these animals as a fundamental constitutional right. This is not a case about three plaintiffs, two cats and a dog. It is about how we treat our disabled community, how we treat the least among us. And a federal judge ruled the renters had been treated unfairly, saying they needed their animals to live as a non-disabled person would. The total settlement for the three defendants is around a million dollars. Rathod says it's one of the biggest payouts for such a case in the country. But these kinds of suits are becoming more common. The Humane Society's Amanda Arrington says the language around disability in the Fair Housing Act is pretty vague. And really is open for however an individual, an organization, an agency wants to interpret it. Arrington says as the use of these emotional support animals has become more widespread, two conflicting things are happening. More residents in subsidized housing are asserting their right to own them, and more housing agencies are setting limits on them. We still are struggling in this country around a lot of fair housing issues. And so when you add pets into the mix, I I think that we still have a long way to go to get to a place where where people are protected and, and their animals as well. And she says it doesn't help that the very idea of needing an animal support for everyday life seems unbelievable to some. Whenever someone tries to board a plane with an emotional support pig or peacock, it only adds to the argument that this whole thing has gone too far. But in Meeker, A.J. White says his cats are a big part of why he's able to function in the world. They've helped me out with quite a lot of things. I'm doing a lot better now than I used to, though. All thanks to these two. Grabbing a bag of kibble, he says he wants to use this settlement to help pay for college and cat food. In Meeker, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. In the 1960s, two college friends went on a search for their little slice of heaven. We drove around from farmer to farmer asking if they know any land for sale and led us all the way back to southern Colorado. That's Clark Rickards, and he and his friend eventually bought a six-acre goat farm near Trinidad. They paid just $450 and turned it into an artist community, which they named Drop City. Rickard went on to become an influential painter, and a retrospective opens this weekend at the Museum of Contemporary Art, Denver. CPR Arts reporter Stephanie Wolf takes us into his world of Drop City. Drop City drew a lot of attention, locally and nationally, for its free-loving, hippie lifestyle. Do a Google search, and you'll find no shortage of articles talking about how the experimental artist colony was rife with drugs and alcohol. But co-founder Clark Rickert says that's a misrepresentation. We weren't trying to be hippies, by the way, and we didn't consider ourselves hippies. But the media world basically called us hippies. He says they were too broke to buy any of those vices. And the name, Drop City, had nothing to do with dropping acid. It had to do with dropping art. Something he and his buddy Gene Bernofsky came up with while attending the University of Kansas. Well, we lived on the third floor, and we'd go up on the roof. There's some rocks up there, so we started painting the rocks. And then we started dropping the rocks near the passers-by below. Rickard and Bernofsky became fascinated by people's reaction to the falling art rocks. He said they'd look everywhere but up. Then we evolved into dropping other things, 
like dropping mattresses. We did drop a piano. <laughs> made a lot of noise. They started calling any art they made drop art. Rickard envisioned Drop City as a place where artists could live and work. They'd share meals and make drop art together. The community had a cluster of distinctive dome structures, inspired by the renowned architect and theorist Buckminster Fuller. They were very colorful buildings, most of them made out of um, car tops. These domes and his time at Drop City were very influential on Rickert's work. You can see similar geometric shapes in his paintings. The large, often square canvases are filled with intricate motifs, Hundreds of interconnected octagons, squares, circles, triangles, often inspired by patterns that organically occur in nature. All matter has a crystalline form. So a lot of the art was early on an attempt to organize elements in the periodic table. He also has a long-standing fascination with different dimensions, with time and space and reality. In our 30-minute interview, he shared many of the theories that guide his artistic vision. Plato's allegory of the cave, people are watching shadows on the wall, and Plato was suggesting that the real reality is casting those shadows. You know, more so contemporary like physics, reality. there's now um, string theory, which postulates that so it's through the trichotahedron that I started getting interested in higher dimensions. The aneocotahedron is regarded as a shadow. He's far from getting bored with these concepts. But Rickard says you don't have to go down the rabbit hole of high-dimensional spaces to appreciate his work. I really like music a lot. I like Bach. But I don't understand Bach structurally. I just like the music I listen to. So it's my belief that you can appreciate these things without delving deep into what they are structurally. Zoe Larkins, who curated the MCA exhibition, says many would probably cite Drop City as Rickard's biggest contribution to the Colorado art scene. But she believes he's done much more than that for local art. Clark has helped in his time here to cultivate an experimental art-making scene that is very much in touch with what's going on elsewhere in the country and even the world. She also says his time as an educator has been significant. That includes the 20 years he taught at the Rocky Mountain College of Art and Design in Lakewood, retiring from the school just last year. Rickard sees the student-teacher relationship as symbiotic. There's a lot of exchange of ideas between the so-called teachers and the students. And I really do think that the teacher can learn from the students. Rickert continues to mentor artists, and some of his pupils have work in the MCA show. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News. And the show Clark Rickard Hyperspace opens at MCA Denver this weekend. The Boulder Museum of Contemporary Art, meanwhile, also has a Rickert show with many works that have never been seen in public. It might just be the most important event of the 20th century. Ladies and gentlemen, we may be approaching a fateful hour. All night long, bulletins have been pouring in from Berlin, claiming that D-Day is here, claiming that the invasion of Western Europe has begun. 75 years ago, June 6, 1944, Allied forces landed on the beaches of Normandy, France. The massive invasion marked a turning point in World War II. And each year, to honor the fallen, veterans and dignitaries have gathered on that hallowed ground. This year, a choir from Colorado will also be in attendance. One, two, three! Many men came here as soldiers, many men. 
You're hearing Sound of the Rockies, a 100-member men's a cappella chorus in Denver. They were invited to be the sole vocal ensemble from the United States to perform at the D-Day commemoration at the Normandy American Cemetery, which is just above Omaha Beach. Singers range in age from 78 down to 16 years old. Dean Hoisington is one of the younger members. It's going to be the last major commemoration of D-Day where there are living veterans that were there on the battlefield on that day. You know, I mean, I've read about this in the history books and the chance to actually go there and meet this living history, it's something, you know, I can't pass that up. Jeff Mullen agrees. He'd retired from Sound of the Rockies, but decided to come back for this performance. All of us have tried to imagine how we're going to be able to get through this when we're actually standing there on that site, filled with all those swirling emotions and and memories and imagining that we have to focus on delivering our message and bringing those songs of reverence and those songs of hope. Because if we all just melt into a puddle on the stage, obviously, you know, we're not, we're not doing what we went there to do. We attended a recent rehearsal at a church in Denver. Our role is to give other people an experience. Let them cry. If they're out there bawling, we are successful. We are good. People are feeling the feels, and that's what we want them to do. It's our job to do that, and if we're up there barely singing because we can't get through that, it's not going to happen. I'm a 22-year Navy veteran, naval officer and aviator. I served in Vietnam and the Far East and in Persian Gulf and all that. This is choir member Gary Forsberg. And I had three uncles who served during World War II, two in the Air Corps and one in the Navy. So it's going to be very meaningful for me to pay my respects to those guys that did so much with so little. Another veteran and choir member, 24-year-old William Scunard, was in the Marine Corps. He says performing at the D-Day commemoration will bring history to life. Reading about and just studying these events that happened, um, you never really think that you're going to get to go and actually meet some of the men and women who were there, some of the most courageous people I'll probably ever meet in my life. Because if you ask a lot of people today in the military especially, a lot of them would not be able to tell you if they would be able to sacrifice themselves like a lot of these men and women did during D-Day. It's just going to be one humbling experience for me. Singer T.J. Donahue attended the 70th anniversary, which was unforgettable for him. All over Normandy, people came in replicas of U.S. vehicles and in uniforms, and you'd go up to them and say, hey, what part of the States do you come from? And they don't speak English. They're from Italy or Estonia or they're from any place. Oh, what's it 
I ran into a couple of kids in the plaza at St. Maryglise, and they were dressed in paratrooper outfits with camouflage on their faces and helmets, and I went up in my limited French and asked them why they were dressed this way. They said, it's our way of remembering. It's our tradition. Sound of the Rockies represents the United States and Colorado this week in Normandy, France, honoring the 75th anniversary of D-Day. And that's Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner. We'll be seeing you on CPR News.